The Vicar of Wakefield by Oliver Goldsmith, read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton. Chapter Twenty: The History of a Philosophic Vagabond Pursuing Novelty but Losing Content. After we had supped, Mrs. Arnold politely offered to send a couple of her footmen for my son's baggage, which he at first seemed to decline, but upon her pressing the request, he was obliged to inform her. That a stick and a wallet were all the movable things upon this earth that he could boast of. Why, I, my son, cried I, you left me poor, and poor I find you are come back. And yet I make no doubt you have seen a great deal of the world. Yes, sir, replied my son, but travelling after fortune is not the way to secure her. And indeed of late I have desisted from the pursuit. I fancy, sir, cried Mrs. Arnold, that the account of your adventures would be amusing. The first part of them I have often heard from my niece, but could the company prevail for the rest? It would be an additional obligation. Madam, replied my son, I promise you the pleasure you have in hearing will not be half so great as my vanity in repeating them. And yet in the whole narrative I can scarce promise you one adventure, as my account is rather of what I saw than what I did. The first misfortune of my life, which you all know, was great. But though it distressed, it could not sink me. No person ever had a better knack at hoping than I. The less kind I found fortune at one time, the more I expected from her another, and being now at the bottom of her wheel, every new revolution might lift, but could not depress me. I proceeded, therefore, towards London in a fine morning. No way uneasy about to-morrow, but cheerful as the bird that carolled by the road, and comforted myself with reflecting that London was the mart where abilities of every kind were sure of meeting distinction and reward. Upon my arrival in town, sir, my first care was to deliver your letter of recommendation to our cousin, who was himself in little better circumstances than I. My first scheme, you know, sir, was to be usher at an academy. And I asked his advice on the affair. Our cousin received the proposal with a true sardonic grin. Aye, cried he, this is indeed a very pretty career that has been chalked out for you. I've been an usher at a boarding school myself, and may I die by an anodyne necklace, but I had rather be an under turnkey in Newgate. I was up early and late, I was browbeaten by the master, hated for my ugly face by the mistress, worried by the boys within. And never permitted to stir out to meet civility abroad. But are you sure you are fit for a school? Let me examine you a little. Have you been bred apprentice to the business? No, then you don't do for a school. Can you dress the boy's hair? No, then you won't do for a school. Have you had the smallpox? No, then you won't do for a school. Can you lie three in a bed? No, then you will never do for a school. Have you got a good stomach? Yes. Then you will by no means do for a school. No, sir, if you are for a genteel, easy profession, bind yourself seven years as an apprentice to turn a cutler's wheel, but avoid a school by any means. Yet, come, continued he, I see you are a lad of spirit and some learning. What do you think of commencing author like me? You have read in books, no doubt, of men of genius starving at the trade. At present, I'll show you forty very dull fellows about town that live by it in opulence. All honest jog trot men who go on smoothly and dully, and write history and politics, and are praised. 
Men, sir, who, had they been bred cobblers, would all their lives have only mended shoes but never made them. Finding that there was no great degree of gentility affixed to the character of an usher, I resolved to accept his proposal, and, having the highest respect for literature, hailed the antica martyr of Grub Street with reverence. I thought it my glory to pursue a track which Dryden and Otway trod before me. I considered the goddess of this religion as the parent of excellence. And, however an intercourse with the world might give us good sense, the poverty she granted I supposed to be the nurse of genius. Big with these reflections, I sat down, and finding that the best thing remained to be said on the wrong side, I resolved to write a book that should be wholly new. I therefore dressed up three paradoxes with some ingenuity. They were false, indeed, but they were new. The jewels of truth had been so often imported by others that nothing was left for me to import but some splendid things that, at a distance, looked every bit as well. Witness you powers what fancied importance sat perched upon my quill while I was writing. The whole learned world, I made no doubt, would rise to oppose my systems. But then I was prepared to oppose the whole learned world. Like the porcupine, I sat self-collected with a quill pointed against every opposer. "'Well said, my boy,' cried I. "'And what subject did you treat upon? "'I hope you did not pass over the importance of monogamy.' "'But I interrupt. "'Go on. "'You published your paradoxes. "'Well, and what did the learned world say to your paradoxes?' "'Sir,' replied my son, "'the learned world said nothing to my paradoxes. "'Nothing at all, sir. "'Every man of them was employed in praising his friends and himself, "'or condemning his enemies. "'And, unfortunately, as I had neither, I suffered the cruelest mortification, neglect. As I was meditating one day in a coffee-house on the fate of my paradoxes, a little man happening to enter the room placed himself in the box before me, and after some preliminary discourse, finding me to be a scholar, drew out a bundle of proposals, begging me to subscribe to a new edition he was going to give the world of Propertius, with notes. This demand necessarily produced a reply that I had no money, and that concession led him to inquire into the nature of my expectations. Finding that my expectations were just as great as my purse, I see, cried he, you are unacquainted with the town. I'll teach you a part of it. Look at these proposals. Upon these very proposals I have subsisted very comfortably for twelve years. The moment a nobleman returns from his travels, a Creolian arrives from Jamaica, or a dowager from her country seat, I strike for a subscription. I first besiege their hearts with flattery, and then pour in my proposals at the breach. If they subscribe readily the first time, I renew my request to beg a dedication fee. If they let me have that, I smite them once more for engraving their coat of arms at the top. Thus, continued he, I live by vanity and laugh at it. But between ourselves I am now too well known. I should be glad to borrow your face of it. A nobleman of distinction has just returned from Italy. My face is familiar to his porter, but if you bring this copy of verses, my life for it you should succeed, and we divide the spoil. Bless us, George, cried I, and this is the employment of poets now. Do men of their exalted talents just stoop to beggary? Can they so far disgrace their calling as to make a vile traffic of praise for bread? Oh, no, sir, returned he, a true poet can never be so base. For wherever there is genius there is pride. 
the creatures I now describe are only beggars in rhyme. The real poet, as he braves every hardship for fame, so he is equally a coward to contempt, and none but those who are unworthy protection condescend to solicit it. Having a mind too proud to stoop to such indignities, and yet a fortune too humble to hazard a second attempt for fame, I was now obliged to take a middle course and write for bread. But I was unqualified for a profession where mere industry alone was to ensure success. I could not suppress my lurking passion for applause, but usually consumed that time in efforts after excellence which takes up but little room when it should have been more advantageously employed in the diffusive production of fruitful mediocrity. My little piece would therefore come forth in the midst of periodical publication, unnoticed and unknown. The public were more importantly employed than to observe the easy simplicity of my style or the harmony of my periods. Sheet after sheet was thrown off to oblivion. My essays were buried among the essays upon liberty, eastern tales, and cures for the bite of a mad dog while Philautos, Philalethes, Philelutaros, and Philanthropos all wrote better, because they wrote faster than I. Now, therefore, I began to associate with none but disappointed authors, like myself, who praised, deplored, and despised each other. The satisfaction we found in every celebrated writer's attempts was inversely as their merits. I found that no genius in another could please me. My unfortunate paradoxes had entirely dried up that source of comfort. I could neither read nor write with satisfaction, for excellence in another was my aversion, and writing was my trade. In the midst of these gloomy reflections, as I was one day sitting on a bench in St. James's Park, a young gentleman of distinction who had been my intimate acquaintance at the university approached me. We saluted each other with some hesitation, he almost ashamed of being known to one who made so shabby an appearance, and I afraid of a repulse. But my suspicions soon vanished, for Ned Thornhill was at the bottom a very good-natured fellow. "'What did you say, George?' interrupted I. "'Thornhill was not that his name. It can certainly be no other than my landlord.' "'Bless me!' cried Mrs. Arnold. "'Is Mr. Thornhill so near a neighbour of yours? He has long been a friend of our family, and we expect a visit from him shortly.' My friend's first care, continued my son, was to alter my appearance by a very fine suit of his own clothes. And then I was admitted to his table upon the footing of half-friend, half-underling. My business was to attend him at auctions, to put him in spirits when he sat for his picture, to take the left hand in his chariot when not filled by another, and to assist at tattering a kip, as the phrase was, when we had a mind for a frolic. Beside this, I had twenty other little employments in the family. I was to do many small things without bidding, to carry the corkscrew, to stand godfather to all the butler's children, and sing when I was bid. To be never out of humour, always to be humble, and, if I could, to be very happy. In this honourable post, however, I was not without a rival. A captain of marines, who was formed for the place by nature, opposed me in my patron's affections. His mother had been laundress to a man of quality, and thus he early acquired a taste for pimping and pedigree. As this gentleman made it the study of his life to be acquainted with lords, though he was dismissed from several for his stupidity, yet he found many of them who were as dull as himself that permitted his assiduities. As flattery was his trade, he practised it with the easiest address imaginable. 
but it came awkward and stiff from me, and as every day my patron's desire of flattery increased, so every hour being better acquainted with his defects, I became more unwilling to give it. Thus I was once more fairly going to give up the field to the captain, when my friend found occasion for my assistance. This was nothing less than to fight a duel for him, with a gentleman whose sister it was pretended he had used ill. I readily complied with his request, and, though I see you are displeased at my conduct, yet, as it was a debt indispensably due to friendship, I could not refuse. I undertook the affair, disarmed my antagonist, and soon after had the pleasure of finding that the lady was only a woman of the town, and the fellow her bully and a sharper. This piece of service was repaid with the warmest professions of gratitude. But as my friend was to leave town in a few days, he knew no other method of serving me but by recommending me to his uncle Sir William Thornhill, and another nobleman of great distinction who enjoyed a post under the government. When he was gone, my first care was to carry his recommendatory letter to his uncle, a man whose character for every virtue was universal, yet just. I was received by his servants with the most hospitable smiles, for the looks of the domestics ever transmit their master's benevolence. Being shown into a grand apartment, where Sir William soon came to me, I delivered my message and letter, which he read, and, after pausing some minutes, pray, sir, cried he, inform me what you have done for my kinsman to deserve this warm recommendation. But, I suppose, sir, I guess your merits, you have fought for him and so you would expect a reward from me for being the instrument of his vices. I wish, sincerely wish, that my present refusal may be some punishment for your guilt, but still more, that it may be some inducement to your repentance. The severity of this rebuke I bore patiently, because I knew it was just. My whole expectations now, therefore, lay in my letter to the great man, as the doors of the nobility are almost ever beset with beggars, all ready to thrust in some sly petition, I found it no easy matter to gain admittance. However, after bribing the servants with half my worldly fortune, I was at last shown into a spacious apartment, my letter being previously sent up for his lordship's inspection. During this anxious interval I had full time to look round me. Everything was grand and of happy contrivance. The paintings, the furniture, the gildings, petrified me with awe, and raised my idea of the owner. Ah, thought I to myself, how very great must the possessor of all these things be, who carries in his head the business of the state, and whose house displays half the wealth of a kingdom. Sure, his genius must be unfathomable. During these awful reflections I heard a step come heavily forward. Ah, this is the great man himself. No, it was only a chambermaid. Another foot was heard soon after. This must be he. No, it was only the great man's valet de chambre. At last his lordship actually made his appearance. Are you, cried he, the bearer of this here letter? I answered with a bow. I learned by this, continued he, as how that, but just at that instant, a servant delivered him a card, and, without taking farther notice, he went out of the room and left me to digest my own happiness at leisure. I saw no more of him till told by the footman that his lordship was going to his coach at the door. Down I immediately followed and joined my voice to that of three or four more who came, like me, to petition for favours. His lordship, however, went too fast for us, 
and was gaining his chariot door with large strides when I allowed out to know if I was to have any reply. He was by this time got in and muttered an answer, half of which only I heard, the other half was lost in the rattling of his chariot wheels. I stood for some time with my neck stretched out in the posture of one that was listening to catch the glorious sounds, till, looking round me, I found myself alone at his lordship's gate. My patience, continued my son, was now quite exhausted. Stung with the thousand indignities I had met with, I was willing to cast myself away, and only wanted the gulf to receive me. I regarded myself as one of those vile things that nature designed should be thrown by into her lumber-room, there to perish in obscurity. I had still, however, half a guinea left, and of that I thought fortune herself should not deprive me. But in order to be sure of this, I was resolved to go instantly and spend it while I had it, and then trust to occurrences for the rest. As I was going along with this resolution, it happened that Mr. Cripps's office seemed invitingly open to give me a welcome reception. In this office, Mr. Cripps kindly offers all His Majesty's subjects a generous promise of thirty pounds a year, for which promise all they give, in return, is their liberty for life, and permission to let him transport them to America as slaves. I was happy at finding a place where I could lose my fears in desperation, and entered this cell, for it had the appearance of one, with the devotion of a monastic. Here I found a number of poor creatures, all in circumstances like myself, expecting the arrival of Mr. Cripps, presenting a true epitome of English impatience. Each untractable soul at variance with fortune wreaked her injuries on their own hearts. But Mr. Cripps at last came down, and all our murmurs were hushed. He deigned to regard me with an air of peculiar approbation, and indeed he was the first man who for a month past talked to me with smiles. After a few questions he found I was fit for everything in the world. He paused a while upon the properest meaning of providing me, and slapping his forehead as if he had found it, assured me that there was at that time an embassy talked of from the Synod of Pennsylvania to the Chickasaw Indians, and that he would use his interest to get me made secretary. I knew in my own heart that the fellow lied, and yet his promise gave me pleasure. There was something so magnificent in the sound. I fairly, therefore, divided my half-guinea, one half of which went to be added to his thirty thousand pounds, and with the other half I resolved to go to the next tavern, to be there more happy than he. As I was going out with that resolution, I was met at the door by the captain of a ship, with whom I had formerly some little acquaintance and he agreed to be my companion over a bowl of punch. As I never chose to make a secret of my circumstances, he assured me that I was upon the very point of ruin in listening to the office-keeper's promises, for that he only designed to sell me to the plantations. But, continued he, I fancy you might, by a much shorter voyage, be very easily put into a genteel way of bread. Take my advice. My ship sails to-morrow for Amsterdam. What if you go in her as a passenger? The moment you land, all you have to do is teach the Dutchman English, and I'll warrant you'll get pupils and money enough. I suppose you understand English, added he, by this time, or the juices in it. I confidently assured him of that, but expressed a doubt whether the Dutch would be willing to learn English. He affirmed with an oath that they were fond of it to distraction, and upon that affirmation I agreed with his proposal 
and embarked the next day to teach the Dutch English in Holland. The wind was fair, our voyage short, and after having paid my passage with half my movables, I found myself, fallen as from the skies, a stranger in one of the principal streets of Amsterdam. In this situation I was unwilling to let any time pass unemployed in teaching. I addressed myself, therefore, to two or three of those I met, whose appearance seemed most promising. But it was impossible to make ourselves mutually understood. It was not till this very moment, I recollected, that in order to teach Dutchmen English it was necessary that they should first teach me Dutch. How I came to overlook so obvious an objection is to me amazing, but certain it is I overlooked it. This scheme thus blown up, I had some thoughts of fairly shipping back to England again. But happening into company with an Irish student who was returning from Louvain, our conversation turned upon topics of literature, for, by the way it may be observed, that I always forgot the meanness of my circumstances when I could converse upon such subjects. From him I learned that there were not two men in his whole university who understood Greek. This amazed me. I instantly resolved to travel to Louvain, and there live by teaching Greek, and in this design I was heartened by my brother student, who threw out some hints that a fortune might be got by it. I set boldly forward the next morning. Every day lessened the burden of my movables, like Aesop and his basket of bread. For I paid them for my lodgings to the Dutch as I travelled on. When I came to Louvain I was resolved not to go sneaking to the lower professors, but openly tendered my talents to the principal himself. I went, had admittance, and offered him my services as a master of the Greek language, which I had been told was a desideratum in his university. The principal seemed at first to doubt my abilities, but of these I offered to convince him by turning a part of any Greek author he should fix upon into Latin. Finding me perfectly earnest in my proposal, he addressed me thus, you see me, young man, continued he, I never learned Greek, and I don't find that I have ever missed it. I have a doctor's cap and gown without Greek. I have ten thousand florins a year without Greek. I eat heartily without Greek, and in short, continued he, as I don't know Greek, I do not believe there is any good in it. I was now too far from home to think of returning, so I resolved to go forward. I had some knowledge of music with a tolerable voice and now turned what was once my amusement into a present means of subsistence. I passed among the harmless peasants of Flanders, and among such of the French as were poor enough to be very merry, for I ever found them sprightly in proportion to their wants. Whenever I approached a peasant's house towards nightfall, I played one of my most merry tunes, and that procured me not only a lodging, but subsistence for the next day. I once or twice attempted to play for people of fashion, but they always thought my performance odious, and never rewarded me, even with a trifle. This was to me the more extraordinary, as whenever I used in better days to play for company, when playing was my amusement, my music never failed to throw them into raptures, and the ladies especially. But as it was now my only means, it was received with contempt, a proof how ready the world is to underrate those talents by which a man is supported. In this manner I proceeded to Paris, with no design but just to look about me, and then go forward. The people of Paris are much fonder of strangers than have money than those who have wit. As I could not boast much of either, I was no great favourite. 
after walking about the town four or five days and seeing the outsides of the best houses i was preparing to leave this retreat of venal hospitality when passing through one of the principal streets whom should i meet but our cousin to whom you first recommended me this meeting was very agreeable to me and i believe not displeasing to him he inquired into the nature of my journey to paris and informed me of his own business there which was to collect pictures medals intaglios and antiques of all kinds for a gentleman in london who had just stepped into taste and a large fortune i was the more surprised at seeing our cousin pitched upon for this office as he himself had often assured me he knew nothing of the matter upon my asking how he had been taught the art of a cognoscento so very suddenly he assured me that nothing was more easy the whole secret consisted in a strict adherence to two rules the one always to observe that the picture might have been better if the painter had taken more pains and the other to praise the work of pietro perugino but says he as i once taught you how to be an author in london i'll now undertake to instruct you in the art of picture buying at paris with this proposal i very readily closed as it was a living and now all my ambition was to live i went therefore to his lodgings improved my dress by his assistance and after some time accompanied him to auctions of pictures where the english gentry were expected to be purchasers i was not a little surprised at his intimacy with people of the best fashion who referred themselves to his judgment upon every picture or medal as to an unerring standard of taste he made very good use of my assistance upon these occasions for when asked his opinion he would gravely take me aside and ask mine shrug look wise return and assure the company that he could give no opinion upon an affair of so much importance yet there was sometimes an occasion for a more supported assurance i remember to have seen him after giving his opinion that the colouring of a picture was not mellow enough very deliberately take a brush with brown varnish that was accidentally lying by and rub it over the piece with great composure before all the company and then ask if it had not improved the tints when he had finished his commission in paris he left me strongly recommended to several men of distinction as a person very proper for a travelling tutor and after some time i was employed in that capacity by a gentleman who brought his ward to paris in order to set him forward on his tour through europe i was to be the young gentleman's governor but with a proviso that he should always be permitted to govern himself my pupil in fact understood the art of guiding in money concerns much better than i he was heir to a fortune of about two hundred thousand pounds left him by an uncle in the west indies and his guardians to qualify him for the management of it had bound him apprentice to an attorney thus avarice was his prevailing passion all his questions on the road were how money might be saved which was the least expensive course of travel whether anything could be bought that would turn into account when disposed of again in london such curiosities on the way as could be seen for nothing he was ready enough to look at but if the sight of them was to be paid for he usually asserted that he had been told they were not worth seeing he never paid a bill that he would not observe how amazingly expensive travelling was and all this though he was not yet twenty-one when arriving at leghorn as we took a walk to look at the port and shipping he inquired the expense of the passage by sea home to england this he was informed was but a trifle compared to his returning by land he was therefore unable to withstand the temptation 
so paying me the small part of my salary that was due, he took leave and embarked with only one attendant for London. I now, therefore, was left once more upon the world at large, but then it was a thing I was used to. However, my skill in music could avail me nothing in a country where every peasant was a better musician than I. But by this time I had acquired another talent, which answered my purpose as well, and this was a skill in disputation. In all the foreign universities and convents there are upon certain days philosophical theses maintained against every adventitious disputant, for which, if the champion opposes with any dexterity, he can claim a gratuity in money, a dinner, and a bed for one night. In this manner, therefore, I fought my way towards England, walked along from city to city, examined mankind more nearly, and, if I may so express it, saw both sides of the picture. My remarks, however, are but few. I found that monarchy was the best government for the poor to live in, and commonwealths for the rich. I found that riches in general were in every country another name for freedom, and that no man is so fond of liberty himself as not to be desirous of subjecting the will of some individuals in society to his own. Upon my arrival in England I resolved to pay my respect first to you, and then to enlist as a volunteer in the first expedition that was going forward. But on my journey down my resolutions were changed by meeting an old acquaintance, who I found belonged to a company of comedians that were going to make a summer campaign in the country. The company seemed not much to disapprove of me for an associate. They all, however, apprised me of the importance of the task at which I aimed. That the public was a many-headed monster, and that only such as had very good heads could please it. That acting was not to be learnt in a day, and that, without some traditional shrugs which had been on the stage, and only on the stage, these hundred years, I could never pretend to please. The next difficulty was in fitting me with parts, as almost every character was in keeping. I was driven for some time from one character to another, till at last Horatio was fixed upon, which the presence of the present company has happily hindered me from acting. End of chapter